This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston and climbing its tower on April 5, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him, he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade. By the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead and their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. 
Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark. And beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night. And the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides. And under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed. Who at the bridge would be first to fall? Who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball? You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading, and what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day. Gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861. Still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of a musician and a heck of a guitar player. This is the story of Eddie Van Halen, his immigration to this great country, and the beginning of his musical career. Here's Jesse with the story. Eddie Van Halen is one of the most famous and talented guitar players of all time. His sound is the epitome of 1980s rock and roll. The band, named after himself, sold so many records and went through so many lead singers over the years that they basically lost track of the official worldwide album sales information somewhere along the way, upwards of 100 million worldwide. The band formed in Pasadena, California, 1972. While the sound of Van Halen is uniquely American, the story of Eddie Van Halen begins in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Born in 1955 to a Dutch father and an Indonesian mother, my father uh, was a professional musician, uh, classically trained on clarinet and saxophone, and he traveled the world making music, and he met my mother in Indonesia. So here she is stuck at home with Alex and I, and uh, uh, my father's out trying to get gigs, uh, which kept him from home uh, at weeks at a, for weeks at a time. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, with the big band era and everything coming kind of to a, to a close, he said to my mom, let's uh, pack up the kids and the piano and move to Beverly. Hills, that is. Swimming pools and movie stars. So little Eddie Van Halen, his brother Alex, mom and musician dad made their break for America, and they brought the family piano with them. We came to America uh, on, on a boat, nine days on the boat, and um, uh, he, he, he performed on the boat with the band, and uh, that was our ticket over here. And uh, one day he comes up to Alex and I, and he goes, so why don't you guys play piano during the intermission? So we ended up performing also on the boat, uh, which uh, gave, showed us the, uh, the quirks of, uh, of being a performer, uh, or the, the pluses of it, because the, the next night we're at the captain's table eating dinner. <laughs> so we, we found out at an, at an early age, you know, what being on stage meant. While little Eddie was quickly learning the perks of being a musician, he would also soon learn about the struggles of being a traveling troubadour. When we finally arrived in Pasadena, California, it was rough. Uh, my father, you know, a classically trained musician, uh, had to walk three miles uh, to go wash dishes. He was a janitor at Masonic Temple and Pacific Telephone. We lived in one room, but we slept in one bed in a house with two other families. So it, it was rough going. Somewhere my mom had a, a sense that we were gonna follow in my father's footsteps. And and knowing that in the back of her head, she insisted that we start being classically trained on piano. While young Edward Van Halen and his brother Alex continued to be trained on classical piano, their mother would place them into piano competitions. You practice one piece of music all year and the funny thing is, I never learned how to read music. And uh, I fooled the teacher. I was just blessed with good ears. I'd, w I'd watch his fingers and, and emulate what he did. You know, he didn't find out until much later that I couldn't read. Uh, the, these piano contests, uh, actually, uh, both Alex and I won three years in a row. I think I won first prize three years in a row. And Al won first prize, second prize, whatever. But we, we always won. And... Uh, it's kind of like in phases where you go in and you play and then you go, you wait an hour to see if your name gets whittled down. I had no idea. It was like 5,000 kids. 
Okay, then it'll go down to 2,000, and you see if your name is still on the list. And then it'll go down to 100 people, and then 10, and then 5. And we're going, Alex and I are both going, come on, let's, let's just go home. We're not going to make it, you know? And my dad, my dad was always one said, no, 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 wait, 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 check it out. And well, there it was. We were in the top five. And then uh, we ended up winning. Eddie and his brother dominated the piano competitions roughly from ages 9 to 11. It was around this time that the Van Halen brothers discovered rock and roll. We discovered the Beatles and Dave Clark Five. And of course, like any kid, we wanted the rock and roll. I quit uh, piano lessons and the contest circuit, so to speak, and said, I want to get myself a drum kit because I like a song glad all over by Dave Clark Five. And I wanted to play drums, so I got a paper out, bought a St. George drum kit for 125 bucks. And my mom somehow convinced my brother to still do something musically respectable, which is take Lenko guitar lessons. One day, while young Eddie was returning from his paper route, he found his brother Alex pounding away on the drums that he had bought with his own money. He owed me a bit in the beginning, you know. And then finally I just said, okay, he's just better than I am. So... I never wanted to play guitar, but I said, okay, go ahead, take my drums, I'll play your damn guitar. While classically trained on the piano, young Eddie had no idea how to play the guitar. So, he taught himself. I just, uh, instead of reading a book, I wrote my own, so to speak. Um, uh, I'd say that 90% of the things that I do on guitar, if I had taken lessons and learned by the book, uh, I would not play it all the way I do. As a matter of fact... Because of the things that I created, uh, technique-wise and whatever the way I play, they had to reinvent a whole new way to write music. Because uh, they could not explain uh, with regular notes what I was doing with this hand. So they had to create a whole new thing called tablature. While tablature's been around since the 1300s, Eddie absolutely revolutionized the way people heard and played the guitar. And while he didn't exactly invent two-hand tapping on the guitar's fretboard, which sounds like this, he most definitely brought the technique mainstream. The Van Halen brothers formed their first band called the Broken Combs in 64. As they progressed and gained in popularity, they started to play backyard parties and changed the name to the Trojan Rubber Company. In 1972, they formed another band called Genesis. They initially rented out a sound system from David Lee Roth, but decided to save money by letting him join the band as the lead vocalist. The band later changed its name to Mammoth when they discovered that the name Genesis had already been taken by Phil Collins. In 1974, Mammoth officially changed its name to Van Halen. In mid-77, Mo Austin and Ted Templeton of Warner Brothers Records saw Van Halen perform at the Starwood. Though the audience was small, the two were so impressed that within a week, they offered the band a recording contract. Upon its release, the self-titled album Van Halen reached number 19 on the Billboard Pop Music Charts, one of rock's most commercially successful debuts. The sounds on that record were... A lot of years of experimentation and tearing apart guitars and opening up amplifiers and getting electrocuted. By the time the first record came out, we had worked so hard to make that record, to get to that point. Uh, don't forget, we, uh, being a rock and roll band in 1977, 78, uh, it's kind of what it's like today, uh, except back then it was punk and disco. I hate to bring up Spinal Tap, but, you know, but uh, you know, while they're going to 11, at the, at the time, I was already going to 15. 
The album included songs now regarded as Van Halen classics like Running with the Devil and the guitar solo Eruption, which showcases Eddie's use of finger tapping. The main reason why I squeeze so many, you know, you call them tricks, call them whatever techniques out of a guitar, was out of necessity because I couldn't afford the pedals. So I did everything I could to get sounds out of, out of the guitar with my fingers. The band would go on to record several albums only to unceremoniously swap out lead singer David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar in a big bag of drama from 1985 that we're not going to rip into in this report. Aside from this clip from the movie Airheads. What side are you taking the big David Lee Roth Van Halen split? What do you mean? What kind of question is that? What side did you take, Halen or Roth? Van Halen. He's a cop. And the rest is pretty much history. With 12 albums under their belt and the eventual reunion with singer David Lee Roth, oh, yes. the band had a successful North American tour in 2015 and are rumored to be gearing up for another in the near future. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, Van Halen is the 19th best-selling band in United States history, selling 56 million albums in the U.S. alone. Not bad for a kid who immigrated to America fresh off the boat with the family piano in tow. Coming here with... Approximately $50 and a piano, not being able to speak the language, uh, going through everything uh, to get to where we are. Uh, if that's not an American dream, I don't know what is. I mean, really, only in America is it still possible. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's all about freedom, and you put your nose and tail to it, and uh, just don't stop. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Put your nose and tail to it and just don't stop. By the way, his story is reminiscent of Irving Berlin's. If you remember, two very different kinds of musicians. Irving Berlin did not read music, neither did Eddie Van Halen. He was self-taught, so is Eddie Van Halen. If you remember, Irving Berlin only played the black keys because his fans and his fingers couldn't play with the white ones. And we learned that, my goodness, Eddie, he couldn't afford the pedals. So that's why he had to learn to bend those strings and get all those sounds out. What a story, what an American story. Eddie Van Halen's story here on Our American Story. is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, and of course, your stories too, and you can send them to ouramericannetwork.org, they're some of the very best we've produced, and again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And today we bring you the story of an unlikely friendship in the antebellum South that's at the heart of a household name. The legacy that that left on a town and a new Tennessee whiskey that commemorates it all. Jack Daniels is the oldest registered whiskey distillery in the United States and the top selling American whiskey around the world. It's named for its founder, Jasper Jack Daniels. 
But this isn't the story of Jack Daniels. Well, not exactly, but it shares the same hometown of Lynchburg, Tennessee. It's the tale of two whiskeys. Uncle Nearest, and it's it's named after this um, this man who was the first master distiller on record in the United States who was black. Actor Jeffrey Wright has partnered with the people behind Uncle Nearest Whiskey to tell the story behind the new spirit and its namesake. And um, there was a young boy uh, who came to work for him when he was eight years old. His mother had died when he was four months old. His father passed away at some point when he was young uh, as well. He went to work for Uncle Nearest and uh, whose services were being rented by the owner of this farm. And this young boy was a good, hard worker, and he did all these various chores, but he was curious about what Uncle Nearest did. And Uncle Nearest t- took him in under his wing and taught him how to be uh, a master uh, distiller. Um, so Uncle Nearest has this new bottle named after him because of it. And the young boy, his name was Jack Daniel. Uncle Nearest was founded by a woman named Fawn Weaver, right, who read the same article that I read in the New York Times about two years ago, uh, who's out in L.A., and she got on a plane and went to Lynchburg and started researching this history because she was as moved by the story as I was. It's just, I just love our history because our history is so much more complicated when the, and, and beautiful when the whole story is told. You know, and this story just is uh, is one example of that. Nathan Nearest Green. You know, because when you, just because you were a slave didn't mean you couldn't be a genius, too. Von Weaver on the story she uncovered. This is one story that refuses to die. It's literally come up probably about every decade where it's the story of Nearest Green. And, and we were able to piece together that he is the first African-American master distiller. He was Jack Daniels' teacher his mentor, his friend. The story is in around 1820 in Maryland and a slave was born. And we don't know what happened between that time and the time we see him in a city called Lynchburg, Tennessee, around the mid 1850s. And he's the the head distiller at this farm for a preacher and a distiller. And this guy has to make a decision. Do I continue to be in the whiskey business? And my church is telling me you have to choose. You have to be a preacher, you have to be a distiller. And so he chose being a preacher, Mm -hmm. but he still wanted to make money. So he allowed the still to be run solely by an African-American man. That did not happen. There was always a white boss. And so around the middle of the 1850s, a, a young kid comes who lost his mother at four months old, a white kid, and he shows up and he's a chore boy. He is not a privileged kid. He is not someone who is higher than nearest. He found comfort in, as you will, as a teacher, as a mentor, just happened to be African-American. It's one of those great stories that out of the ugliest time in American history arises a beautiful story. And fast forward, He wants to learn the whiskey business, and Nearest takes him under his wing and begins to teach this young white kid how to do whiskey Mm -hmm. his way. And essentially, the only difference between bourbon, which most people know, and Tennessee whiskey, is the process that Nearest taught. So Nearest's whiskey was the best in the land because of a process that more likely than not came from West Africa, which is a 
uh, filtering through charcoal, through ma sugar maple charcoal. And, and so once it goes through there, it just makes a superior whiskey. Not much is known about Nathan Nearest Green, but we do know that when Jack opened the doors to his distillery in 1866, Nearest was there. So he was free. He was Jack's first master distiller. We know that he was the master distiller until at least 1881, where the first Jack Daniel distillery is located. So it's about 313 acres where Jack grew up, where nearest taught Jack, where the original still, where the water still flows and all the rest of that, we own that. So that 313 acre property and, and the home and the old still and all the rest of that stuff. Jack was a good dude and he had a great relationship with nearest and nearest's boys. Not only was he paid to run his distillery, but he was the well wealthiest African-American in the area. He, his boys, his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, you could go through Lynchburg and I can point out all the land that they owned. It wasn't small. In this case, no, no credit was stolen. I will be, I can confirm that because every single day, a day doesn't go by where I am not on the phone, on text, on email with Nearest's family. And the thing that they are very clear about is Nearest's name was not forgotten because of that white young boy who everyone else now knows to be Jack Daniel. His real name mm. is Jasper Newton Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, in Lynchburg, we all call him Uncle Jack. But it is, his family is very clear in wanting to make sure that in this process of honoring Nearest, that we do not forget that Jack honored Nearest when he was alive. Nearest and his boys were mentioned 50 times in Jack's biography. Fawn Weaver's business partner and entertainment mogul, Kenny Burns. The story of Uncle Nearest is not a super divided story. No. It's not a super no. blacks got treated so bad, right? Mm -hmm. The community in which they live, and of course things happen. That was the era, that was the norm, right? But the story in which was gonna make an incredible movie is that this was a very close-knit community that really yeah. loved each other, you know? And it's, it's amazing to hear stories like this because these aren't the stories we hear from that era. I met with, I interviewed over 100 people for this, descendants of both Jack and Nearest, and every elder African-American, and by elder I mean like 75 and up, and there's a lot of them there, surprisingly, every single one that I would interview and say, when you talk about race relations when you were growing up, would you say it was like 60-40, 70-30, 80-20 in terms of negative to positive, or positive to negative? Every single one said 90-10. 90 positive, 10 negative. You're talking about people that are 70, 80, right. 90 years old. It's easier to tell a story that's negative because the stories that are positive are nuanced. And no one wants nuance. Everyone wants 140 characters. And what a story that was we just listened to. And so true those words are, it's easier to tell a story that's negative. If it bleeds, it leads. And as you can tell from our American stories, we do the opposite. And we'll leave others to handle those kinds of stories. Race relations were 90% positive and 10% negative. And here on Our American Stories, we think that there are so many good stories like this all over the country, not just now, but in our history, that that's what we're sticking to. And Uncle Nearest and Tennessee Whiskey, a story you don't hear anywhere else, on the radio, on podcasts. And again, send your stories to us. And again, it could be something you've stumbled onto that you think we should be covering. It just doesn't have to be your personal narrative 
Let us know you're our eyes and our ears. And of course, you're our listeners too. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Uncle Nearest Tennessee Whiskey. Used to spend my nights out in the ballroom. From reaching for the bottom and brought me back, being too far gone. Your smooth Tennessee whiskey. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our Rule of Law series where our own Alex Cortez brings us stories about how this Rule of Law thing silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. Yo toco el violín por la paz. I play the violin for peace. Por la libertad. For freedom. Mi nombre es Willy Arteaga. Vengo de una familia muy humilde que me prohibió ir a la escuela. My name is Willy Arteaga. I come from a humble family, a family that prohibited me from going to school. Por eso tuve que aprender todo lo que sé por internet. That's why I had to use the internet to learn everything I know. Aprendí a tocar violín con videos de YouTube. I learned to play the violin by watching YouTube. You're hearing a translator because Wooly is from Venezuela. Una nación prácticamente destruida. A nation that's almost been destroyed. Solamente el último año, millones de personas han salido a la calle en protesta. Just in the last year, millions of people have come out on the streets in protest. Here's the Foundation for Economic Education's Larry Reed. When he was around 20 years of age, he began protesting in the streets of Caracas. And that's because he saw firsthand the violence of the Maduro socialist dictatorship. Right now, socialist dictator Nicolas Maduro ordering his army to open fire on Venezuelans attempting to cross the Brazilian border as they search for necessities. This regime of Nicolas Maduro has from day one tried to take all other branches of government and make them mere pawns of the executive branch. The Supreme Court of Venezuela today is just a rubber stamp for him. The National Assembly, he makes sure that they really don't have any real legislative power. And the result is the collapse of the rule of law, a brutal one-party tyranny that shuts down freedoms of speech and press and assembly. 
that controls virtually every aspect of the economy and has driven the country to impoverishment. This is a country that was the richest in Latin America barely a generation or two ago. And now it's one of, if not the poorest. The average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds in the last couple of years, reflecting the fact that food is increasingly scarce. They just don't have the things that socialists are fond of promising, but rarely deliver. Socialists never bake a bigger pie. They simply quarrel amongst themselves about the best way to divvy up a shrinking pie. The money issued by the socialist government that is now near worthless is being used for toilet paper because socialist regimes always run short of toilet paper. And it's also being used to make baskets. So very non-monetary purposes. You know, in America, we would never think of that. But that's what's being done in Venezuela today because the money has become virtually worthless. The government has been printing paper boulevards like there's no tomorrow. And that's the source of the soaring prices. Inflation in Venezuela this year is likely to be measured in the millions of percent. What that does to people is just so awfully tragic. They can't save. They can't invest. They have no hope for the future because the economy is just falling apart. Venezuela is a country gripped with a nightmare. A principios de este año, un compañero mío, Armando Cañizales, fue asesinado en una de estas protestas. One of my colleagues, Armando Carrizales, was murdered in one of these protests. Pero yo me rebelé y fui a tocar por él y por millones de venezolanos. But I continue playing for him and for millions of Venezuelans. Pero en respuesta fui atacado con gases lacrimógenos, con cañones de agua. Me golpearon con mi propio violín. In response, the government has attacked me with tear gas, with water cannons. They even beat me with my own violin. There was an incident in the summer of July 2017 when the police fired rubber bullets at him and hit his face, causing some serious injuries, and also broke his violin. And there would be no violin when they put him in prison. Me quemaron el cabello con un encendedor. And that wasn't enough. They also burned my hair with a lighter. He was beaten and he thought he was going to die. Willie was becoming very well known throughout Venezuela as they saw and heard of his leading protests with his violin. So his arrest and torture in Venezuelan jails only made him even more of an object of admiration on the part of many Venezuelan people. In comparison con algunos, Yo la he tenido prácticamente fácil porque muchos no salen de la cárcel, sino que mueren. In comparison with some of them, I have actually had it easy because many of them have not even left the prison yet. Los asesinan. Some of them have been murdered. Willie was released from prison. He made his way, as been the case with so many, to Colombia, then got a flight to New York. The flow of human traffic is a, an ongoing verdict on the success or failure of any society. 
And in Venezuela right now, you're seeing an exodus in one direction. More than 3 million people, more than 10% of the population of the country has left in just recent years. And they're coming not to other socialist nations or communist nations, they're going to much freer places, and they always have. This is always a sign that freedom is what people want. I asked Willie recently through a friend who speaks Spanish what Willie thought the difference was between the two countries and what his expectations were when he came here and how well they have been met. And he was quick to say that the difference between Venezuela and the United States is the difference between hell on earth and heaven on earth. When he came here, he, of course, didn't know anything about the country other than its reputation for freedom. He knew that uh, uh, he would be allowed to come in and hopefully given political asylum. But other than that, he, he thought that uh, going to New York might be risky, that the crime rate would be something to worry about. But now he has settled in and he feels as though the crime even in the Bronx is next to nothing compared to what he experienced back in Caracas. He tells the story of a singer named Marley that he came upon while passing through 34th Street around midnight. There were people around, but she was singing with such inspiration that her eyes were closed. And he was reminded when he saw that of his playing back in Venezuela during the protests. Willie says he can now play with his eyes closed in New York City without worrying about police or paramilitaries attacking him. A stark contrast between the absence of the rule of law and the presence of it. One place you can't close your eyes in the streets and another you can. He's come to know other musicians and now sometimes he plays with five or six other musicians like a concert something which he couldn't do in the streets of Venezuela. No other musician would bear with him the rule of lawlessness that was killing their art. And he loves how open New Yorkers are. They never hesitate, he wrote, to show him if they like his music. Perfect strangers coming up and offering him $100 uh, simply because they love his music or they know his message. And they know what he's been through back in Venezuela. It's a very heartwarming story of a young man who fled repression, is now in New York playing on the streets and finding that Americans really do have a heart, that there are a lot of good people who are trying to help him out. One night in New York City, not long ago, it was about 2 a.m., and a policeman approached Willie to tell him that he couldn't play in the streets past 1 a.m. But there was a crowd that told him that he had to continue. And Willie took the side of the policeman and said, uh, he's just doing his job. But then the policeman told him how much he personally loved Willie's music. And although he didn't give him any cash because he didn't have any with him, he gave Willie his police patch instead. It was a simple act, uh, but Willie deeply appreciated it. And to this day, talks about it as just a great moment of friendship from an unlikely source. And thanks for that, Alex, and thanks to Larry Reed as well with the Foundation for Economic Education. Learn more about their terrific work advancing the rule of law and liberty 
at fee.org. That's fee.org. The story of Willie Arteaga is, well, it's emblematic of so much that's going on in the world. Where people are moving from and where people are moving to is something we track because it tells you everything about a human life. Moving is not easy. It's hard to do. And when doing it the way people are doing it in mass like this tells you a story about one home and where they're moving to, well, a story about another home, a new and adopted home called the United States. Wooly Arteaga's story, America's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love to talk about everything here on this show from business to history, from sports to the arts and your stories too send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org we'll take a listen, we'll put it together, produce it and you'll be hearing your stories, your own stories on the air, they're some of our favorites the American people can write and talk and my goodness what stories you've already given us What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her head In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm picking up good vibrations. Here's Ringo Starr. It was like a strange place full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen. Here's music producer Don Was. Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song. Everyone thought that was insanity. Here's music historian Chuck Granato and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes. In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling. What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. was a, a really personal endeavor. I work in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. It 
So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company, uh, or not only were they not aware that I was making the record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it. And the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point, someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, well, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul. And he says, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Les Paul not only designed some guitars that made new and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. That, that, that changed everything. Here's Eric Clapton. The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary. Uh, we turn the tape machines on. They're just a standard, regular uh, Ampex tape machine. Mm -hmm. As I recall, there are uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices? Mm -hmm. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now I'll add a tenor part to that. Right. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? <laughs> it's being, pretty confused. Being cued by your husband. <laughs> well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music. Here's Jeff Beck. Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying, you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said, it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, me. that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound is it's still exciting. Before magnetic tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded. You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic tape, it just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to. So you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it lets you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. 
Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard format. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story. our American stories and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution and by the way I'm a huge music fan and there's some stuff well I'm just writing down notes to myself and I'm gonna be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler okay wouldn't it be nice take five Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber Soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Pepper's. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granato. I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. That, that, that was an elevated musical consciousness at play. Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio, and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album, which was Pet Sounds. No, it's gonna make it that much better When we can say goodnight and stay told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session that they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul. None of those big pickups, blah, 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 just, uh, just like a do-do-do-do. Brian like pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts, even before anyone set foot in the studio. Brian was the mastermind. I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. And then uh, the bongos will come in the second half like everything else. All right, here we go. Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound Sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio. Here's Glenn Campbell. Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. 
I remember we all got to sit there for about three and a half hours when he was running his finger up that thing going. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. When he made good vibrations, Brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it. Everyone thought that was insanity, you know, like he's gone mad. He spent 90 hours working on one song. You know, I mean, today that's nothing. Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay. The session that we did on good vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions. Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding, you know. It's like, come on, Brian, fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but she sent me there. Brian's a very deep guy, you know, so he wanted to move beyond songs about summer and, and surfing. Just saying something like, God only knows what I'd be without you in a rock and roll song and then create this wonderful music that enables a listener 50 years later to put it on and to feel what, what they were feeling. That's great art. I may not always love The way he layered and added different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance overdub over overdub over overdub until on God Only Knows he ended up with seven tracks of vocal overdubs. And that's how come you hear this heavenly choir. Here's Paul McCartney. We loved the Beach Boys. And it, it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, oh, listen, listen to what they're doing here, you know. So we did Sergeant Pepper. Here's Ringo Starr. What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Ooh, oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time. Try to realize it's all within yourself, no one else. Here's Beatles producer George Martin. The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. 
That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we like on it. The boundaries were being moved so far forward from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum. Like many of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song. Woke up, fell out of bed, you know the one. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm. Don't listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long making Sergeant Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, <laughs> no, we haven't. Here's Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sgt. Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, hey, that's just... Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction, but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in, in that sense, that album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in our American stories is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things we are learning here, we wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution, here on Our American Stories.
return to Our American Stories, and our next one is about a writer, a writer you may know and you may have even read back in high school or college, if you were lucky enough, Louisa May Alcott. And she's the writer of Little Woman. The book was her most popular, and it's been adapted twice as a silent film and four times with sound. It's also been made into six television shows. Here's Faith with Louisa May's story. In the mid-19th century, few people felt that a woman could be unmarried and still be happy and successful, even live a fulfilled life. Author Louisa May Alcott was what people would have called an old maid. Yet her life was filled with many successes and experiences, including her most successful book, Little Women, which she wrote in 1868 and 1869 in two separate volumes. After the success of the first volume, her publisher asked her to write the second. But we often read them as one. The book is a semi-autobiographical account of her childhood with her three sisters. It follows the life of the four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live with their mother, Marmy. While their father is serving off as a pastor miles away from home involved in the American Civil War, Alcott identified with Joe, the stubborn, Willful, fiery-tempered, but charmingly creative second eldest daughter. I was born with a boy's nature. And have fought my fight with a boy's spirit and a boy's wrath. Never liked girls, or knew many, except my sisters. The book is the girl's journey from childhood to womanhood, and all that lies therein. It's a romantic child's fiction and a sentimental novel. Literary historian Sarah Elbert argues that within Little Women, we find the first representation of the all-American girl and her multiple aspects displayed in the differing March sisters. While Little Women was the most successful of Louisa May Alcott's writings, it was actually the book that she never wanted to write. Niles wants a girl's story. Lively, simple books are very much needed for girls. I said I'd try. Here's Susan Cheever writer of Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography, talking about how Alcott came to write Little Women. It was the book that absolutely changed her life. It made her rich. It made her well-known after years and years of struggle. Uh, But she didn't want to write it. It was the last thing she wanted to do. She felt it went against all of her creative impulses. She had said to her editor, I'll think about it, and stalled and stalled and stalled. She didn't want to do it at all. And it, she ended up doing it, as we'll see, through a series of unfortunate accidents. And I think that often great things happen to us through a series of what seem to be unfortunate accidents. Uh, Louisa May Alcott was 36 years old when she wrote Little Women in 1868. She was the second of four daughters um, of an extraordinary family who lived in and around Boston. She was the daughter of Abba Alcott, who was an aristocrat who had married Bronson Alcott very late in life. 
He was one of these characters. He wore a cape and a big hat, and he carried a cane, and he had long blonde hair.、Uh, but he had a lot of trouble making a living. Anyway, she was the daughter of Bronson Alcott, and Bronson Alcott, I believe, was an educational genius. He really was the first person in this country to start progressive education, and he did it because he believed, and he had no education, so he pulled this out of the sky. He believed that children were angels who came from heaven, as Wordsworth had written, "Trailing clouds of glory." Now, most people in the 1840s believed that children were vipers. Who had to be forcefully civilized before they could join us, you know, big people? Bronson believed the opposite. He believed that adults could learn from children. He gave Louisa one great thing, which was the community in which she grew up. His friends were Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and all kinds of people like that. So, as a girl, she was taught by Thoreau. She used Emerson's library right away. And she grew up in this extraordinary progressive intellectual community, as the daughter of a man who was very respected in that community.、Um, Bronson was fascinated by children, just fascinated. He wasn't just an educator; he was a kind of student of children. But she drove him a little bit crazy, and she was definitely the family rebel. And there was a lot of disappointment in her, in her both from her father and her mother. Now Bronson, this brilliant educator and this friend of the brilliant transcendentalists, had one. He had two big problems. One was he couldn't hang on to money, and the other was that he couldn't write. He was one of the world's worst writers.、Uh, one critic said that reading Bronson Alcott was like watching a train go by with fifteen boxcars and one passenger. Louisa decided that she had to make money for the family, and that she would do it by writing. Louisa did everything she could get paid for. She was a seamstress. She was a teacher. She was a governess. She was a companion. So she decided to take this essay she had written to to the great editor of of the time, James T. Fields, and she knew James T. Fields through her father. James T. Fields was Hawthorne's editor. James T. Fields was De Quincey's editor. James T. Fields was the man, right? So she takes her essay and she walks across Boston. They're living on Pinckney Street, and、uh, here's what happens. She passed the Boston Common and turned into the bustling center of downtown. There, the spire of the Old South Church presided like a disapproving Puritan dowager over the teeming business of the New Boston. There was the bookshop next to Mrs. Abner's coffee house, where Fields took authors and colleagues for coffee and hot buns. There was the gorgeous palace of the music hall, where Louisa had recently gone to hear Theodore Parker demand equality for women. Now Louisa headed for the second floor of the old corner bookshop, where Fields had his office behind a green curtain that separated him from his young assistant Thomas Niles and the piles of manuscripts he had yet to read. She handed him the manuscript, her first and last memoir essay, "How I Went Out to Service." He motioned her to sit and began to read it. She could hear the noise of Thomas Niles' pen scratching and the chatter in the bookstore downstairs. Finally, the great James T. Fields looked up at her and delivered the verdict she would remember for a long time: "Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write." That was not a good moment.、Um, yet, I think it was the moment at which Louisa May Alcott became a writer. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you take criticism in, and you're hurt, of course, and devastated, of course. 
but you almost immediately turn it around and go, well, I'll show them. And it's clearly what happened with Louisa Alcott and James T. Fields. James T. Fields was trying to be nice. He tried to help her in her teaching career. He loaned her $40 to help her start a school with her sister. But she took that in in a very interesting way. However, Louisa's career did not turn around at that point. But she decided that she would show James T. Fields and the rest of the world by writing a big, serious novel a novel that would please her friend Emerson, a novel that would impress her father, a novel which she called Moods. Uh, Probably you haven't read it, maybe you haven't even heard of it. I I don't think it's such a successful novel, and neither did anybody else, which was hard for her because she loved that novel. Anyway, she got one review which was particularly painful in the North American Review uh, from a guy who said... um, The two most striking facts with regard to moods are the author's ignorance of human nature and her self-confidence in spite of that ignorance. So that wasn't good, and her writing career was not looking good. And then their entire lives came to a halt with the beginning of the Civil War. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary story of perseverance, and my goodness, so much more, the story of Louisa May Alcott continues here on Our American Stories. story of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Woman. Author Susan Cheever has been telling us her story, and Susan Cheever wrote the book Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography. We left off with Alcott's writing career not seeming very promising, but it all came to a stop when the Civil War began. And Louisa and everyone in Concord and everyone in Cambridge um, took it very hard. It, 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 of course, was a nightmare. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Louisa didn't know what to do. She was very involved with abolition. Concord had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. She had seen the whole thing. So she ended up enlisting as a Civil War nurse. And it was she was one of the first female nurses in this country. It, it was thought that nurses had to be men because they had to handle naked bodies, etc., 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 But a woman named Dorothy Dix had started, had convinced the War Department to start a corps of female nurses as long as they were plain, unmarried, and over 30. Louisa fit the bill. So she went down to Washington, D.C. to work in the Union Hotel Hospital. It had been a hotel. It was just barely remodeled into a hospital. And oddly enough, or amazingly enough, the second day she got there was the day that in Fredericksburg, Virginia... 
A few miles south, General Ambrose Burnside ordered 14 suicidal attacks of the Union Army against the entrenched Confederate Army. Here are historians Chris Mikowski and Donald Fance describing that fateful day. The majority of federal troops at this point are not very optimistic about their chances. They recognize how strong that position is the Confederates have atop Murray's Heights. Union troops have to charge across several hundred yards of open ground just to reach the Confederate position. Once there, they're going to encounter Confederates who were posted very strongly in massed ranks behind a stone wall. If you survived all that, then you had the Confederate artillery, which was on the high ground behind the stone wall. Those guns were able to fire down over the heads of their own men and scour the ground in front of them. So any way you look at it, it was a killing ground. The day at Fredericksburg was one of the worst battles of the war. The ground was carpeted with the Union dead. And the next morning, Louisa May Alcott looked out the window of the Union Hotel Hospital and she saw carts as far as she could see. It looked to her like farmers coming to market, but of course it was carts filled with the dead and wounded men from Fredericksburg coming to her hospital. But she loved it. She was great at being a nurse. She knew how to talk to the men. She knew how to dig in. She learned how to wash wounds. She worked with the surgeons. She took the job of being up all night, of being the night nurse. She told them stories from Dickens. She wrote letters home when they were alive, and then when the men died, she wrote that very sad letter home saying that the man had died. She just, everything that she hated and that had troubled her fell away. There was no phoniness. There was no, you know, shame about being poor. It was life and death, and she knew what to do when the stakes were that high. And it was an extraordinary experience for her. And her letters home from the hospital are written in a completely different way than she had ever written before. It was in the Union Hotel Hospital that she found her voice. However, at the Union Hotel, she also fell sick with a lung infection, which in those days they gave you medicine that had mercury in it. So, this resulted in her growing sicker and sicker until her father had to come and get her and take her back to Concord. On the brink of death, her and her father put together the book Hospital Sketches, which in the end was the compilation of her letters home and the letters written to the families whose soldiers had fallen. During that time, she was not sure she would live herself. Louisa May Alcott, through the help and care of her family, overcame her illness. And being the hard worker that she was, she didn't wait long before trying to find work again. As she got better, she decided again that it was time to take her next step as a writer. So she went to Thomas Niles, who was her editor. He had been James T. Fields' assistant. And she said to him, you know, what, what should my next book be? And he said, well, he said, the only book I could really sell that you might write would be a book for young women. And she was horrified. She was insulted. She was like, do they ask Emerson to write a book for young women? I don't think so, right? What is this? I thought I was a serious writer. You know, all these years she had worked to be a serious writer. She had written all these stories under a pseudonym for Frank Leslie. She had written Moods. She had written hospital sketches, and they were still sort of trivializing her, she thought. But what happened was uh, Thomas Niles was an inspired bully. So he wrote Bronson Olcott a letter saying, um, 
you know, I'm a big fan of your writing. And I would love it if Louisa wrote this book for young women. And if she did, I think we could publish your next book as well. So that was a brilliant stroke. Bronson started in on Louisa, trying to get her to come home and write this book for young women. And eventually he got her. Um, she came home in January of, or went back to Concord. She had, she'd gone to Boston. She'd gotten herself a job. She was having a good time. She wasn't going to write the book for young women. But he got her back to Concord in January of 1868 for the purpose of writing this book for young women, which she didn't want to write. And so she stalled and stalled and stalled. She did everything but write the book for young women. January went by, February, March, April, May. Um, Finally, in May, she sat down just thinking, oh, you know, I might as well try it. She was totally discouraged about it. She thought she had written a little bit about four sisters who she called the pathetic family. So she just thought, well, I'll just write what happened, you know, which is, of course, not what she did, but that's how it felt to her. And, you know, within about three weeks, she had finished the first part of Little Women. She didn't like it very much. Thomas Niles didn't think it was too great either. Um, Thomas Niles had a niece who got hold of the manuscript and was up all night. But it's the minute, almost the minute Thomas Niles published the first part of Little Women in November... Uh, the outpouring of letters and admiration was huge. And by Christmas, Louisa May Alcott was one of the best-known writers in the world and one of the wealthiest. So it was really a kind of amazing overnight success uh, because of what happened with, with Little Women, that which she didn't want to write. So after the huge success of Little Women, a letter to James T. Fields. I remember he had lent her money. Dear Mr. Fields, once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I had made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Very truly yours, L.M. Alcott. So, um, she got her own back. The same man who told her to stick to her teaching, Miss Alcott, you can't write. She got to prove wrong. Little Women wasn't necessarily the book she wanted to write. But in the end, what was its impact on others? And, ultimately, on herself. She wrote the first part, she turned it in, he didn't like it much, he published it, the outpouring was huge. And then he said to her, okay, write the second part. And then they both realized that they had a tiger by the tail. And then, God bless him, he said to her, I can give you a flat fee or you can take a percentage, but if I were you, I would take the percentage. So she did. Neither of them realized what she had done. It's sort of fascinating. And I don't think that's that unusual, I have to say. I think writers often don't know when they've done their best work. The beauty and intrigue of this book is the perspective that Alcott brings. She wrote reflectively on her own life. In one chapter in particular, we find Jo at the age of 25, feeling old and like she has nothing to show for it. She's been focused on her career rather than finding a husband. And in this moment, the narrator detours from the story. To the girl in the 19th century, growing up and not finding a husband could feel like the end of the world. Little Women became a memoir of sorts. So although Alcott was quite happy and successful, she still had reflections from her spinsterhood. It's interesting to contrast her life with the pity she feels for old maids in the following passage. Quote, 
At 25, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At 30, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact, and if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have 20 more useful happy years, in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns, and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself, make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with, because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. In looking at them with compassion, not contempt, girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time, that rosy cheeks don't last forever, that silver threads will come in that bonny brown hair, and that by and by, kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story it is, Louisa May Alcott's story. And you can hear so much of what we do on the arts and literature in particular. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done stories about Melville, about Hemingway, Fitzgerald, with a reading from The Great Gatsby. Louisa May Alcott's story, in a sense, the story of the 19th century and the beginning of the women's movement in a very real and smart and bold way. All of that here on Our American Stories.